Hello everyone, this is Chris Miller, your co-host of your absolute favorite podcast of all time, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Uh, today we just want to ask you, if you're enjoying it, to subscribe to our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can get exclusive content, and you can help out Rob and Chris do all the things you love so well. Remember to hold fast and enjoy the show. I was going through last week's episode, and we talked a lot about the Fire Festival. Yeah, and I, I actually went back and watched the Amazon, or sorry, not the Amazon, the um, Netflix documentary again. I didn't see the Hulu one. I haven't seen the Hulu one. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get into the Hulu one. But, oh my god! Is the is the Netflix one funny? It's so good. It's, it's so good. <laughs> just when all these rich kids from Instagram just realized that what they walked into. It's I like when they good. actually chained them into the into the airport. Yeah. Like, why did they chain just the door? Chain them in. Why did they chain them in? Oh, cool. So yeah, we are we're talking about a uh, little something in the spirit of the fire festival today, <laughs> but uh, a little bit different. It's fire festival for the age of sale. Uh, of course, this is These Rogues and Renegades. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. And once again, we are joined by our good friend, Kyle Graper. Welcome back, Kyle. Good to be back. So, uh, what did you think of the uh, episode last week? What did yeah, you think you, of the first part of the story? You had a week to stew of, on this. Of Gregor McGregor, now that you've had some time to think it over. He's just the predecessor to all our Enrons. And yeah, people don't change at all. <laughs> no. No, oh, it's 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 amazing. Well, it's it's going to get even weirder today. So, we are getting into part two, of course, of the story of Gregor McGregor. Um, he was, of course, the Scottish soldier of fortune, social climber, and con man. And is this the, is this the part where we were, uh, we're like previously on thieves, rogues, and renegades? Where yeah. We got like HBO on it. Is Maybe this a little recap. Maybe a little <laughs> little sixty second highlight reel going into the uh, into the new episode. It's always uh, my favorite part of Game of Thrones. Here's here's the thing, though. With all the shit that he pulled that we talked about in the last episode, none of it is going to compare to the grift that he's about to spend the next 16 years of his life pulling. The Poyas scheme would cause McGregor to pull off a lie that would make Victor Lustig look like Jim Carrey and Liar Liar. I'm looking forward to the Victor Lustig one. The Victor Lustig one's a lot funnier than this because... Mm-hmm. Bunch of people are gonna die. Yeah, nobody died. Victor Lustig <laughs> never caused anybody to die. Right. A bunch of people are gonna die. He built a bunch of really rich people out of their money, which, <laughs> you know, fair enough. So uh, this is what people wanted the Firefest documentary to boil down to. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Deep down, deep down in our black little hearts, might include myself in this in this rank. Uh, but yeah, so McGregor. He's also going to steal enough money from investors that he folded. He's going to make Bernie Madoff look like a cheeky Dickensian pickpocket by comparison. He's going to make everybody look like a cheeky Dickensian it, pickpocket. It, it, this is, and not necessarily in terms of numbers, but just in terms of sheer balls, this is the greatest con in history. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think, by far. Yeah, like this This adversely affected global economies. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, it also ends up costing a couple hundred lives as a result. Mm-hmm. So, the sources, of course, for today are the same as they were last week. We have The Land That Never Was by David Sinclair, which is a, an excellent book. And then we have General McGregor, Hero or Rogue by Charles E. Bennett. Spoiler alert, not hero. <laughs> not, not hero. So, when we last left Gregor McGregor, 
He had spent the first part of his life as a soldier in the service of the British crown, fighting in the Napoleonic Wars a little bit, and making a right pain in the ass of himself. He ended up doing that a whole lot more. With his predilection towards attention to immaculate dress uniforms and climbing the social ladder while acquiring wealth for himself in order to present himself as far more rich and important than he actually was. Having been drummed out of the army for trying to apparently dissolve the entire anti-Napoleon alliance single-handedly through the simple method of acting like a gigantic dickhead, he decided to make his fame and fortune as a freedom fighter in the service uh, in the series of independence wars being fought in South America. And though he found some moments of fleeting military success, he spent most of his time losing disastrously and embezzling all the money given to him to help fight these wars. So we're going to pick up with McGregor in May 1821. He rocks back up in London in his ship, El McGregor, which stands well, for... Well, it's his now. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just it originally belonged to somebody else, and then he just pulled up on an island, dropped the dude off because he was sick, and just took his ship. Mm-hmm. But the ship's name is El McGregor, which is Spanish for the McGregor. The McGregor. <laughs> <laughs> and he, announced, he announces something truly remarkable. After leaving Venezuela in the War of Independence being fought against the Spanish there, uh, McGregor, of course, neglecting to tell anyone that he was forced to leave because if he, was, if he returned, he would be hanged as an enemy of the state, he found himself, having been blown off course by a storm en route to Jamaica, in the court of King George Frederick Augustus of the Mosquito Coast, uh, in the northeast corner of, uh, coast of what's now Honduras, going down into what's now Nicaragua. Despite his European-sounding name, George Frederick Augustus was the tribal chief of the Mosquito people, who were descendants of shipwrecked slaves and indigenous Central Americans. And the Mosquito people were on relatively good terms with the English, sharing a general antipathy towards Spain, leading the British authorities to have these chiefs crowned kings since the mid-17th century. Now, it's important to note that these were kings in little more than name, who had no effective control over the land they ostensibly led, but the Brits crowning and recognizing their leadership was simply to obstruct Spain's colonial goals. Yeah, it was, that was definitely a, uh, a way of scratching one another's backs. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they, got the, uh, they got the help from the, the British. <laughs> what the hell is going on? Kyle's trying to do sign language. Is his, is his mic working properly? Everybody's mic's working properly. Because okay, the USB cable's half out. Oh, he's good. He's good, man. Mm-hmm. We're live in this bad boy. <laughs> yeah, Kyle, we are professionals here. <laughs> okay? We like, are professionals sitting in a kitchen drinking beer with a dog. Yeah, we rode the dog in because he walks around. You think we can't handle a couple USB connections? <laughs> Point taken. All right. You know what we said about the cell, Kyle? <laughs> Yeah. I have the crate in the basement. <sighs> so, uh, picking up where I left off. Before we were so rudely interrupted. <laughs> uh, there had been a small British settlement in the area, but it had been abandoned in 1786, and the whole area was just pretty much hills and overgrown jungle. No arable land, no no place to plant crops, no place to raise animals. It's completely wild. If you're at home, uh, write that down. Yeah, R- write that is, down. We're gonna we're gonna reference that in a minute. <laughs> this is gonna be important to remember later. <laughs> this this will be on the exam. So, despite being shamed by his embarrassing defeats in Venezuela, McGregor had apparently lost none of his silver tongue nature and managed to apparently do some serious sweet talking to good old King GFA on April 29th, eighteen twenty. George Friedrich Augustus signed a document granting McGregor and his heirs a substantial part of Mosquito territory, roughly eight million acres, or about twelve and a half thousand square miles. 
That's the approximate geographic area of the state of Maryland. Yeah, that's 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 pretty large. And the whole thing was in exchange for a st- uh, substantial stocks of jewelry and rum. Well, makes sense to me. I mean, it, when you got a party, you got a party, I suppose. Mm. Now, McGregor dubbed the area Poyes after the natives in the highlands around the area, the Paya or Poyer people, uh, known today as the Peche. He gave himself the Spanish title of Cazique, a translation of a Taino word meaning the prince or heir apparent of a nation. Now, he claimed that the title had been created and bestowed upon him by George Frederick Augustus, but both the title and the land itself were, of course, of his own invention, as was most of his standing, most of his reputation, and just about everything else about him. So, in May 1821, McGregor is returned, despite the publishing of a book by one of the disgruntled former officers under his command during his series of military fuck-ups in South America that detailed his cowardice and his martinet nature, London society remained hmm, largely unaware of his faults. Using this ignorance, plus the good publicity he had as a former officer in the 57th Foot Regiment, the famed Diehards, although he'd been dismissed from the unit long before their gallant defensive action in Spain that gave them their nickname, uh, he also he capitalized on that and his successes in South America against royalist Spanish troops, which he was happy to talk up to no end, and he became popular and an in-demand figure in London society. The rich and powerful of London were happy to have this mysterious figure as <clears throat> excuse me, were happy to have this mysterious figure as become an adornment for their dinner tables and ballrooms to hear his stories of military adventure and heroism and the telling about this new country born of the shifting political and military situation in Latin America that this decorated general was the leader of. His appeal was enhanced by the presence of his exotic South American wife, Josefa, the princess of Poyas, who had just given their son Gregorio a baby sister, Josefa Gregoria. You look at... McGregor. Gregoria McGregor. Who's... Who's the one who has who has all, all of his George kids named after Foreman. Him? George, George Foreman. Foreman. Thank George you. George Foreman. Uh, uh, yeah, they're all variations they on are the name George. George or Georgette. And there are eight. <laughs> yeah. Eight, I am told. I, that number might be wrong, but I do know that that is George Foreman, maybe the scariest hitter of all time. So word of McGregor got around so quickly that he even received an invitation to a special reception in his honor at London's magnificent Guildhall, given by the Lord Mayor of London himself. So he's becoming a very big deal very, very quickly. Now, McGregor claimed that he had come to London to represent Poyas at the coronation of King George IV and to seek investment and immigrants for the new nation. He claimed to have inherited a democratic system of government, along with a basic civil service and military. He had with him a copy of the printed proclamation he had issued to the Poyers, the people of Poyas, on the 13th of April, 1821, where he announced the land grant from the King of the Mosquito Peoples, announced his departure to Europe to build up support and diplomatic ties and to seek investors and colonists, such as, quote, religious and moral instructors and persons to assist and guide you. The document concluded, quote, Poyers, I bid you now farewell for a while. I trust that through the kindness of almighty providence, I shall again be enabled to return amongst you and and that then it will be my pleasing duty to hail you as affectionate friends and yours to receive me as your faithful cazique and father. Uh, no evidence of such a statement being released on the Mosquito Coast actually exists. <laughs> I, I, you can picture him just like barking that out, though. Oh, yeah. This is just shouting it, it, just shouting it into, secretary. into the jungle. <laughs> So as the stories of Poyas's foundation were being told, the details of the nation were being laid down by McGregor, 
support it by the attention to detail and skill at processing and disseminating large amounts of information that he had acquired in the British Army. MacGregor devised a tricameral parliament and a full constitution. Uh, he drew up detailed commercial and banking mechanisms and designed distinctive uniforms for each of the regiments of the Poyasian Army and Navy. That was clearly the first thing he did. Oh, I mean, yeah. That was kind of his thing. Like the guy liked he liked flashy outfits. He liked to play yeah. dress up. He liked fancy outfits. He liked medals. He liked hats. He liked canes with silver toppers. Yeah, he, it was like whenever whenever uh, George Bush was wearing that flight suit for some reason, walking that battlefield looking fresh to death, baby. Oh, yeah. If we've learned anything from history, dickheads love a sharp uniform. <laughs> they do. They really do. <laughs> Two words: Muammar Gaddafi. Oh man, and his. His sexy bodyguards, they all wore different ridiculous outfits. <laughs> I, I, my personal favorite was like the, the, like the light khaki mm-hmm. with the jawed purse. That was always a winner. But then there was the one that always stood like way in the back that just had like the like blue velour, like, <laughs> giant pauldrons on the shoulder, <laughs> like, just <laughs> ropes everywhere, just like cords hanging off all over the place, just covered in metals. <sighs> she was looking elite. great, looking great. So he also devised a system of honors, landed titles, and even a coat a coat of arms, and used the same flag of a green cross on a white background that he had used to rally men in support for his abortive attack on Spanish Florida several years before. Why are you going to charge into battle with a white flag? The green cross <laughs> on it. But it's a little green cross. You've seen it, but it's like real thin. Well, no, the battle incident, it was like, it was like, you know, the flag of Denmark or Sweden or something like that. But the, the green and all the pictures, oh, and, and the one that is posted that we will discuss, Oh yes, our newfound favorite website in the whole wide world later. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like real thin. I guess it's just in case. Maybe. Because <laughs> he, he, the dude was jumping on windows. So he was just getting ready. Throwing his mattress on the <laughs> The beach. cross came off. <laughs> now, so convincing was... <laughs> <laughs> just pulled right. out a knife and just pull, sawing through just the cross. Just cord down the flagpole. <laughs> shit, Velcro- shit, 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 Velcroed. shit, <laughs> Now, so convincing was McGregor's story. By the end of 1821, he had enlisted the support of one Major William John Richardson who had provided his estate at Oak Hall in East London as an impromptu embassy and a home abroad for the Poyais royal family. Now, McGregor returned the favor by appointing him to the honor- as the honorary colonel of the Royal Regiment of Poyais Horse Guards, which, uh, uh, this is a point I'm going to make a lot in this episode, didn't exist, and made him the charge d'affaires, or top representative of Poyais in Britain, uh, going so far as to draw up a letter of credence for Richardson from... Gregor the First, Sovereign Prince of the State of Poyais, which had to have made him hard as a diamond. Oh, Yo, yeah. He must have loved that. And this letter was presented to King George IV himself to gain royal recognition by the English crown for the State of Poyais. Now, MacGregor also established official Poyasian offices in London, Edinburgh, and Glasgow to sell official-looking land certificates and to coordinate uh, prospective emigrants. Now, McGregor couldn't have picked a better time or place to start his investment offensive. The British economy was experiencing major growth following the end of the Napoleonic Wars, and a drop in interest rates on the London Stock Exchange meant that those wanting a higher return were more drawn to invest in riskier foreign debt, especially in bonds from the new South American nations, which were offering up to a 6% per annum interest rate of three times what you would get with most investments domestically. As I said before, constantly shifting borders and changing political situations in the volatile regions of Latin America, plus slow-moving news in the age before telegraphs or telephones, meant that a new small nation that had established institutions 
and the potential for growth and opportunity just suddenly showing up was actually a credible story to a lot of people. This was also an age where the British Empire is growing by leaps and bounds, and large parts of the world were still relatively unexplored, so the exciting prospect of new territory to discover and exploit is definitely going to cause a stir in what was seen as, as an age of enterprise. Now, McGregor set about beginning his sales campaign, giving interviews in national newspapers, writing advertisements and leaflets, and composing Poyet-themed ballads to be stung on the streets of London and Edinburgh, including the Poyes Emigrant, <clears throat> with uh, lyrics in, in Scots, such as, We'll gang to Poyes together, we'll gang aware the sea together, to bonnie lands he breathe her skies, ni say a non fair highland heather. So, I, yeah, he was writing songs. <laughs> Not a national anthem, but just songs about how awesome Poyes was. They also published a 355-page guidebook called The Sketch of the Mosquito Shore, Including the Territory of Poyes, which we will refer to from this point forward as just The Sketch, by one Captain Thomas Strangeways, aide-de-camp to the Kazik himself. It does have the best title ever. The Sketch of the, Mos- of the Mosquito Shore, Including the Territory of Poyes, Descriptive of the Country, with some information as to its productions, the best mode of culture chiefly intended for the use of settlers. Yep. That's uh, you like know what you, you can judge a book by its cover. It's the same like that. It does what it's it says. Eloquent in its brevity. Uh, this was, of course, written by McGregor himself. Thomas Strangeways, not a real person, didn't exist. Most people would stop and look at that name and go, "Thomas Strangeways." There's no way that's a real person until you realize he's working for a guy named Gregor McGregor. Yeah, that's kind of that lends <laughs> a little bit of credence to like as, as ridiculous as that name I mean, is, is obviously made up as it is. You are talking like a man named Gregor McGregor handed you a copy of it. So, eh, well, you know, why not? Now, according to the sketch, the climate was, quote, remarkably healthy, agreeing admirably with the constitutions of Europeans, end quote, and was proposed as a spa destination for sick Caribbean colonists. The soil was said to be so fertile that a farmer could have three maize harvests a year or easily grow cash crops such as sugar or tobacco. Plentiful fishing game, cooperative natives who were intensely pro-British, and many protected coves to shelter merchant ships were also touted as attractive features of this new land. The capital of St. Joseph was said to be a flourishing seaside town of wide-paved streets, colonnaded buildings and mansions, and thriving marketplaces inhabited by nearly 20,000 people, which was enormous for the Caribbean or Central That's a America. large city that doesn't exist. And it had a theater, an opera house, and a domed cathedral. The Bank of Poyes made its home in the capital, as did the House of Parliament and the Royal Palace. There was even room to expand the town, including a, quote, projected Hebrew quarter. The sketch went so far as to say that gold dust could be panned easily from the rivers, and on the sides of the mountains, there were gems the size of your fist. And you just scoop them up with your bare hands. You could just... You, could, you don't even have to mine them. You could them. just pick up gems like gravel. They're right there on the surface. Yeah, pick up gems like gravel, I believe, was the phrase that they used in the sketch. Now, McGregor began selling land certificates at two shillings, three pence per acre, which is about 65 bucks an acre today. <clears throat> a lower price than any land available in Britain or in any of her other existing colonies. The price eventually rose by over 50% per acre, but with no diminishing in sales. Now, by the beginning of 1823, McGregor had convinced over 500 investors to purchase Poyasian land, some investing their life savings in the scheme. McGregor also spent months organizing the issue of a Poyasian government loan on the London Stock Exchange, convincing the London Bank of Paring, Shaw, Barber & Company 
to underwrite a two thousand, excuse me, two hundred thousand pound loan, which is just shy of forty million dollars uh, today. And he began issuing Poyasian government bonds in 100, 200, and 500 pound denominations at a 6% per annum interest rate. McGregor also began printing in Scotland uh, official Bank of Poyas dollar notes that would be the legal currency in the new nation, and happily exchanged these, of course, worthless notes for British currency with the emigrants that were about to sign up to move to Poyas. One hard dollar. Yep. <laughs> like, that's my favorite part of the bill was a hard, hard dollar. dollar. <laughs> was it by uh, by His Excellency McGregor or Southern King Gregor? He, he had about 900,000 titles that yeah. he used for himself. I, it, the crazier he gets and the older he gets, the more like flowery names he gives dogs to himself. Away. Yeah, dogs away. <laughs> so do, do we think he's one of the biggest egomaniacs in history? There's clearly something wrong with him. I mean, I'm, I'm putting him top ten. Maybe. Yeah. That I've ever read about. Yeah. He's clearly mentally ill. I just... Because at no point, from the beginning of his life to the end of his life, is there ever any accountability no. or remorse? None. Just he just... It's... I want to know what it was like to have lived that kind of life where he was never wrong. Yeah. You know, he, like, everything was a win. I just want to know what that's like. I mean, Kyle, you've, you've, I mean, you've, you've, you've been reading about him. That's like, couple weeks. What do you think? minutes. <laughs> I think he had no moral compass. I think it's less insanity and more he just didn't care who he had to steamroll in the way to get the acclaim he wanted. So you think he was a sociopath rather than a psychopath? Somebody yes, was truly absolutely. mentally ill. I think he knew what he was doing was beyond wrong. He just yeah. didn't care. Yeah, that that's probably the most accurate way of doing. Because I mean, the man was also clearly very intelligent. Oh yeah, he would, no, he was a very very smart man. He wrote that whole ass book. Yeah. Now, and the bank fraud was brilliant. Yeah, I mean that's oh, yeah. not a petty crime. Brilliantly orchestrated. So we, I mentioned the immigrants. Let's talk about them for a minute. The first group that McGregor targeted were his fellow Scots, assuming that he all uh, he, he assuming that they were more likely to trust him as. <laughs> He was a fellow Scotsman. You know? He, he also needed actual emigrants to reassure potential investors that the country was indeed real and would provide quick monetary returns. He actually had to have people who were signed up to go in order to talk people into buying into buying into it. Now, McGregor told these people that he wished to see Poyais populated with Scots as they possessed the hardiness and character to develop a new nation and even out the losses suffered by Scotland in the failed Darien scheme of 1698. He promised free passage to skilled artisans and tradesmen, free supplies, and lucrative government contracts. Now, enough people, most of them uh, indeed Scots, signed up to emigrate to this new country to fill seven ships. Uh, a banker from London was to head the new bank of Poyais. You had doctors, you had civil servants, you had young men whose families had bought them commissions in the Poyasian military, much in the same way that Gregor himself ended up in the British Army. Worked, worked pretty well for him. And he and he actually made a pretty penny sign uh letting people buy Poyasian military commissions. Uh, there was even an Edinburgh cobbler who took a post as the official shoemaker to the Princess of Poyais. They were all part of that first wave. Leadership of this first group fell to a Glaswegian ex-army officer named Hector Hall, who was made lieutenant colonel of the Poyasian 2nd Native Regiment of Foot, again, didn't exist, was named Baron Tinto, with a grant of 12,800 acres of land. It's about 20 square miles. Now, Hall left London with the first 70 emigrants on the 10th of September, 1822, on board a merchant ship called the Honduras Packet. 
McGregor spoke briefly to each settler. He wished them luck, and as he and Hall exchanged salutes, the Honduras packet set sail, flying the green cross flag of Poyes. Now, soon she was followed by a second merchant ship, the Kennersley Castle, which set off from Leith near Edinburgh on the 22nd of January, 1823, with 200 more emigrants aboard. Now, right after these vessels set off, McGregor's scheme finally hit its first major speed bump due to circumstances beyond his control. The instability in South America led to a panicked sell-off of all these risky government bonds that in the previous few years have been so attractive to investors. And since McGregor had allowed for delayed payment on his Poyes bonds, most of his investors did not make the payments due in January or February 1823, cutting off the majority of his cash flow. Poyasian securities never recovered after that point to the rest of the time that he was in England. Now, by this time, the first settlers had reached their destination, and they had discovered... Boyace didn't fucking exist. Yeah, that dude never drove there and sucked dick for water. No. Ah, yeah. <laughs> uh, back to the fire festival. <clears throat> now, how are we going to release these water trucks from customs? I have an idea. Guys, I got a plan. Start doing some jaw stretches. <laughs> now, by this time, uh, these, these settlers were actually rather bemused to find a country rather different than the one described in the sketch. Uh, they end up setting up camp on shore, assuming that they would be contacted by the Poyasian authorities soon, thinking that they had just landed in the wrong place and that St. Joseph's was, you know, 20 miles up the shore. Now, search parties sent inland with the few natives that they contacted were asking, where can we find St. Joseph? And these natives took them to the rubble of the old English settlement. And that was it. That was all they found. Yeah, it had been abandoned for a very, very long time. Now, Hall immediately recognized that McGregor had duped them, but he held his thoughts in, in private so as to not sow chaos amongst the people he's supposed to lead. Now, a few weeks later, <clears throat> the captain of the Honduras packet just sails away abruptly, leaving the settlers alone apart from a few scattered groups of natives and two American hermits for some reason that the book mentions. Why not? Why not? Why not? I want to know more about them. Yeah, I, they, I, they are mentioned briefly in the book. You know what? I looked. I couldn't find anything. Mm-mm. Couldn't find anything. They weren't a part of the, the, nope. the transit? They were just already there. Yep. Now, Hull set sail in a small boat to make contact with the Mosquito King. <laughs> or to find, I, I always have a voice in my head. I'm the Mosquito King. <laughs> nice. Or to find another Real ship to lend the name. the crown. <laughs> the general belief amongst the settlers was not that they had been deliberately misled by the Kazik but that the blame must have lain elsewhere or there must have been some terrible misunderstanding. None of them at this point, except for Hector Hall, blame McGregor for any of this. Now, in late March of 1823, the Kennersley Castle arrives, quickly deposits its contingent of settlers and their supplies ashore without lending any aid to those already trapped there. You have 70 people already saying, hey, this is fucked up. Pick us up and take us back. And the here cap- come 250 more people and all their shit. And the captain of the Kennersley Castle went... Yeah, I was kind of paid to do this. Yeah, so we're just going to stick with that. So all these people are going to join you. So Hector Hall returns in April with the disheartening news that not only had he not found any ship to lend them aid, but that the good old King George, uh, George Frederick Augustus had not even been aware of their presence or their coming, didn't see fit to lend them any aid as they weren't any uh, responsibility of his. Now, while the emigrants had ample supplies with them, along with sufficient medicine and two doctors and quite a few soldier types to lend security, no one apart from Hall made any serious attempt to organize the party. Morale broke down uh, quickly 
as Hall made several more trips to seek aid, but he never explained to any of the settlers about why he was constantly absent. They just thought he'd, he'd just run for it. And he refused to pay the wages promised to the Poyasian, uh, to those who were there on Poyasian government contracts, which, <coughs> repeat after me, didn't exist. <laughs> now, the rainy season starts right around that time of year, bringing with it severe insect infestations in the camp and diseases such as malaria, yellow fever, and dysentery. Which seems appropriate for the Mosquito Coast. Mm-hmm. One would think so. As the immigrants sank into utter despair, the words of James Hastie, a Scottish woodworker who had brought his wife and three children with him, reflected the mood, quote, It seemed to be the will of providence that every circumstance should combine for our destruction. The would-be royal shoemaker shot himself in the head while lying ill in his hammock, leaving behind a family at Edinburgh waiting to come to Poyais when he was established. Now, a ship finally arrives in the form of a, a small schooner called the Mexican Eagle, carrying the chief magistrate of British Belize to the Mosquito King's court, having discovered the camp. Now, the magistrate, Marshal Bennett, delivered the devastating news that Poyes did not exist, nor had it ever existed, and that he'd never heard of this cazique that they had spoken of. He advised them to return to British Honduras, as they would surely die if they'd stayed there. Now, the majority decided to stay and wait for Hector Hall to return and hopefully with news of passage back to Britain. Now, Hall soon returned with the Mosquito King in tow, who announced that McGregor's land grant was forthwith, forthwith revoked, as he had never granted McGregor the title of Kazikh, nor had given him the right to sell land or raise loans against it. In addition, the emigrants were on his land illegally and would have to leave unless they p- pledged allegiance to him, and to refuse to do so was to be under pain of death. He told them, leave or I will kill you. Which is probably the best thing he could have said. Yeah. I mean, it, realistically at this point, they've that all actually, got malaria. They've all got yellow fever. They were completely locked in the denial. Mm-hmm. And, and that actually gave people to get up and go to get out of yeah. there. So you have a dozen settlers that are already dead. You have 40 that are unable to travel due to weakness. The rest of them just leave these 40 people there and returned to Belize, which required three trips aboard the small Mexican Eagle. Now, the immigrants were in miserable shape when they returned to British territory, and the colonial authorities and the doctors could do little to help the new arrivals. Most of the remaining settlers soon died of various diseases. The colonial superintendent, Major General Codd, opened an official investigation into the debacle and soon sent word back to Britain of the settlers' fates. Now, by this time, by the time the warning had reached London, five more ships had been dispatched by McGregor and were on the way, only to be intercepted and turned back by the British Navy. A third vessel, the Skeen, soon reached the area of the camp, but the captain never let the passengers go ashore. Unlike the captain of the Kennersley Castle, he saw what had happened, he saw that the camp had been abandoned, and he went, I'm not leaving these people to die. There were piles of belongings and furniture, mm-hmm. and just... Just sitting just on the beach. Blistering in the sun. Mm-hmm. Just it, all of their worldly possessions abandoned on a beach. Yeah. At least at least the captain of the ship, that was the skein, had the wherewithal to be like, yeah, this is not yeah. good. Unlike this, the captain yeah. of the Kettersley Castle, he had a bit of a conscience. Best of luck. Yeah. So... One final ship arrived uh, called the Albion in November 1823, but she was only carrying arms and supplies, uh, not any passengers. So her captain just sold all the cargo at local auction. <laughs> it was just like, well, eh, let's make some money here. 
I get it. Yeah. I get it. He's the least sleazy guy that we've discussed thus far. Yep. Now, the surviving colonists, uh, fewer than 50 out of the 250 or so original settlers, either settled in the United States, remained in Belize or British Honduras, or sailed for home, arriving back on October 12th, 1823. Now, shortly before these survivors returned, McGregor left London, telling everyone he was taking his wife Josefa to winter in Italy for the sake of her health, but instead he headed directly to Paris. Now, as the story broke in London, the newspapers alleged that McGregor had orchestrated a massive fraud. However, six of the survivors came forward and claimed that they had been misquoted in these articles and signed an affidavit insisting that the blame lay not with McGregor, but with Hector Hall and other members of the emigrant party. And and I have a quote here. We believe that Sir Gregor McGregor has been worse used by Colonel Hall and his other agents than ever was a man before. And that they had, and that had they done their duty by Sir Gregor and by us, things would have turned out very differently at Poyes. How so, good was this dude? I, I have absolutely no idea. I, well, I, I actually, I do have an idea. They saw him as a rich man, and this is a, a thing that we still pay for today. This idea that the rich can do no wrong—that mm-hmm. you know, wealth equals being good at something wealth equals intellect intellect authority yeah whereas you know clearly that's not the case no mankind has certainly come beyond that point by now there's (laughs) nothing even remotely like this situation that's happening every single godforsaken day of our lives because we have we have studied history and we're not going to repeat the same mistakes that we made no humans are better than that exactly (laughs) humans are better than that exactly now mcgregor was bold enough (laughs) to assert that he himself had been defrauded alleging embezzlement by his agents and claimed that merchants in British Honduras and the Caribbean were deliberately undermining the development of Poyes as it threatened their profits and issued libel writs against some of the papers that had accused him of making up Poyes completely, which is what he had done. Now, in Paris throughout 1824 and 1825, McGregor began to court French investors in the scheme and make overtures to King Ferdinand VII of Spain to make Poyes a Spanish protectorate and use it as a base to launch campaigns for the reconquest of lost colonies in Central and South America. So not only is... He's just started the process all over again. The balls on this guy. I mean, this guy's got this guy's got nuts like the clapper on a fucking church bell. Almost immediately, he starts the same thing. It's an exact the same thing. For, with, just without hesitation, he's like, man, we made a shitload of money off that poise thing, didn't well, we? And making outreaches to the King of Spain. Yeah. I mean, that takes so much balls. Now, McGregor persuaded uh, the Compagnie de la Nouvelle Nustrie, which was a firm of traders that aspired to investment in South America, to purchase 500,000 acres of Poyes for their own settlement scheme, at the same time arranging another loan from a London bank, this time for 300,000 pounds. Now, the sketch was published in French, and the Constitution of Poyes was written to make Poyes a republic, which would appeal more to the French public. It appeared that the whole process was beginning again across the English Channel when the French government finally caught on to the scheme, becoming suspicious when at least 60 people requested passports to travel to a country that they'd never heard of. This country sounds made up. It's like, hmm, we've never heard of this, and we're normally on top of this. So they Googled it. We have ambassadors. You know, we, so 
McGregor's two highest assistants in France were immediately arrested, and McGregor actually went into hiding out in the rural, uh, rural provinces. It took them three months to find him, and on December 18th, or sorry, December 7th, 1825, he was arrested and brought to La Force Prison in uh, Paris. During his arrest, McGregor speculated to his Confederates that the charges against him must be the result of some sudden change in French policy, or perhaps some form of intrigue by Spain to undermine Poyasian independence. Witch hunts. Witch hunts. It's all witch hunts. <laughs> and what's interesting is, to me, this actually raises the question as to whether or not McGregor actually believed what he was telling people. You know, I don't this, think he did it first, but he might... The mind does crazy things. If you tell a lie enough, it becomes the truth. A lie agreed upon. A lie agreed upon. I, I don't know. I don't... That's the thing. I've been racking my brain about this all week as to whether or not he actually believed any of the things he was saying. Or this whole time he's conscious of the fact that he's trying to grift everybody. The level of artifice that goes into creating something like this, there there has to be an awareness of just the fallacy of it all. But at the same time, the older he gets and the longer this goes on, it does seem like he starts to believe his own shit. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I, it, it, I think you're right. I think it's a shift over time. But now we're getting into the second half of the scheme, the second, you know, the second act of the scheme. And I think this is the point where he does start to believe his own shit. Now, attempting to gain favor with the Republican movements in Latin America, McGregor issued a French-language declaration on January 10th, 1826, stating that he was, quote, contrary to human rights, held prisoner for reasons of which I'm not aware. And, quote, suffering as one of the founders of independence in the new world and also making repeated attempts to convince the French government that he was entitled to diplomatic immunity as the Kazik of a sovereign nation. This guy's something else. So he becomes a villain in Die Hard 2. <laughs> every time you think he's... <laughs> yeah, lethal Weapon lethal 2. Weapon two. Me, lethal, lethal Weapon, weapon two. 2. It's just... No, it's just every time you think he's reached the limits of, of bullshit, of self-importance, he just steps up the ladder one more time. It's unbelievable. So April 6th, 1826, McGregor's trial begins. The prosecution's case was severely hampered by the fact that key associates of McGregor's, crucial to the scheme, had escaped to the Netherlands and taken with them many of the documents that would have immediately proven guilt, and that the defense argued that McGregor was actually a victim, being defrauded by those beneath him, and was merely a publicity figurehead that was not actually a part of the conspiracy. The prosecution concluded that there was not sufficient evidence in the case to prove McGregor's guilt, complimenting McGregor for cooperating with the investigation fairly and openly, and then withdrew the charges. Now, just when it looked like McGregor would walk free, the missing conspirators were extradited from the Netherlands, and a fresh trial was convened in July. In the interim, McGregor and his counsel prepared an elaborate, almost entirely fictional 5,000-word statement describing his background, his activities in the Americas, and total innocence of any intent to defraud anyone. With the statement being read in full before the court, the desired effect was achieved, and though one of McGregor's associates was found guilty and sentenced to 13 months in jail, the Kazik was found guilty, or sorry, found not guilty on all charges. Now, feeling that the bad press from his initial Poirier bumblefuck had died down in Britain, McGregor decides to leave France and returns once again to London. He's briefly arrested, <laughs> but Jesus he's Christ, released. Why did, why did fucking go back? But he's released after a week without charges. Now, McGregor once again set straight to work attempting a less elaborate scheme to get people to purchase more Poirier government bonds and persuaded Thomas Jenkins and Company, another small London bank, 
to act as brokers for an 800,000 pound loan. <clears throat> That's $160 million in today's money. The bonds, however, were not popular. An anonymous leaflet was circulating in London warning readers to, quote, take care of your pockets, another poise humbug, end quote. This led McGregor having to pass most of the unsold certificates to speculators for pennies on the pound. Now, what's strange is that the bonds were perceived as, of as humbug, not because anyone actually doubted the existence of Poyes itself, but instead because the previous schemes had just failed to deliver profitable returns. They went, we're 0 for 2 on this. There's no reason it's going to succeed now. That country's totally real. I believe him. He's a rich man. Why would he lie? Now, it's worth stating that McGregor never saw fit to return the 800,000 pounds he had borrowed. Now, McGregor laid low until 1828 when he tried again to sell land certificates to Poyasian territory at five shillings an acre, meaning 25 pounds, or about $10,000 today, got you 100 acres. But these didn't sell as well as McGregor hoped. Soon, original investors were demanding their long overdue interest, and McGregor could only pay that back by selling more land certificates. Soon, the heat grew to be too much for poor Gregor, and in 1834, he moved back to Scotland and spent the next several years trying to sell small amounts of land certificates, a little bit of grift here, a little bit of sweet talk there to assuage the occasional investor who came looking uh, for, to collect on his interest in what started to resemble a Ponzi scheme. Now, occasionally over these few years, he would issue new releases in pamphlet form about Poyes and its virtues, miniature versions of the, of the sketch, and he would issue several, re uh, several rewrites of the Poyasian Constitution as well. He would release about a rewrite a year. But by 1837, it seemed to have all run dry. And an attempt by McGregor in 1837 to sell a small amount of land certificates marks the last record of any active part of the Poyas scheme. And so it all came to an end. Now, if my calculations are correct, between the fraudulent loans, the sale of bond and land certificates, sale of military commissions, and all other means of acquiring money for the fictional new nation, Gregor McGregor spent 16 years in two countries defrauding people and governments out of a total of, and if we adjust for portion of economy, 16 billion pounds. That's $20.8 billion in today's money. And he doesn't even include free shipping. No. On fucking almost twenty one billion dollars. On fucking believe. And and it's he cleared yeah. a billion and a half a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the thing. Like you look at Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff did what about forty six, forty seven billion in fraud. But Bernie Madoff wasn't telling people that a fictional country existed. No. Yeah, he didn't. In, he didn't create. He was his just own, shuffling shit around yeah. in the background. Gregor McGregor, I mean, this is... Yeah, he this, was just doing the Superman yeah. 3 thing. He was just rounding up. This is the reason why I say this is the biggest grift in history. Not because of just the money involved, but just the sheer balls of these claims. He masterminded Ponzi's scheme 100 years before Ponzi existed. Yeah, he, he had it down. Now, and we're going to get into the final part of his life here. And you'll see in a minute... Oh, this is the comeuppance, isn't what? it? <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> now, Josepha McGregor died on May 4th, 1838 in <clears throat> excuse me, near in Edinburgh. <laughs> and Gregor immediately set out for his old stomping grounds of Venezuela, leaving his children behind in Scotland. He resettled in Caracas and applied in October 1838 for citizenship 
and restoration to his former rank in the Venezuelan army without back pay, or sorry, with back pay, 20 years of back pay, and a pension. Now, here's why this is super ballsy. Do you recall from last week why he left Venezuela? <laughs> it kind of went sideways with the whole Bolivar thing. Yeah, so- <laughs> Simon Bolivar had named him an enemy of the state and said if he ever set foot on, South- on the South American he continent again, him. he would hang. <laughs> So to walk back 20 years later and go, hi, I'm back. I know I'm an enemy of the state, but you're going to give me citizenship. You're going to give me 20 years of pay, and you're going to reinstate my rank and give me a retirement pension. So they, so they hanged him, his, right? Did he still have his wealth at this point? <laughs> no. Or did he have no, to give of some of that back? He, he's, he was a spendthrift. He, he laid down money like Allen Iverson. He was... It, 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 so he was the truth to the trickle-down effect. Yes. His thing was... <laughs> Well, I don't think so. It, it, so he, yeah, he he spent all of his money as soon as he acquired it because he was all about display and all about appearing as wealthy as possible. It's, you know, there's no, there's nothing humble about this guy. It's I've, all I've about, seen his facial hair. Like, that, yeah, that's it's, true. It, his thing was, I want to look like the richest man in Britain. And he spent money, and he looked like the richest man in Britain, which is why so many people believed him, even though there were some people who were way richer than he was. He was a man of many hats. Yeah. And not just because he did, like, a lot of different jobs. He he owned a lot of hats. Like, yeah. he was a hat guy. Yeah. Now, luckily for McGregor, Simone Bolivar, the man who had named him an enemy of the state, had died in 1830. And so, McGregor goes to the Venezuelan government. He stresses his travails on behalf of the nation... And he actually still has some associations with former revolutionaries, including the defense minister and the president, Jose Antonio Paez. And that meant that his application was almost immediately approved. And he was duly confirmed as a Venezuelan citizen and given the rank of major general. He left as a brigadier general, so not only did they reinstate his rank, they yeah, fucking promoted him. <laughs> he became a respected member of the local community, finally, and started living within his means for the first time in his life. And finally, on December 4th, 1845, at the age of 59, Gregor McGregor died at home in his bed. He was given a full state funeral, and obituaries in the Caracas papers extolled his, quote, heroic and triumphant uh, retreat as part of the Venezuelan independence campaign in 1816, and described him as, quote, a valiant champion of independence. There were no words about his debacles at Amelia, Amelia Island, Portobello or Rio de la Hacha, and no references to this cazique of Poyes. At the McGregor graveyard by Loch Katrine in Scotland, the clan memorial stones make no mention of Gregor or the nation he invented. And today, the fictional nation of Poyes does exist as the home to Bigfoot, the vaccine that causes autism, trickle-down economics, and is home to the survivors of the Bowling Green Massacre. And that's the story of Gregor McGregor. I'm going to pour out my beer and replace it with Drano. Yeah, I think that that's that's probably the the logical progression of things. Nobody ever convicted him of a damn thing. This dude carried off the biggest con in history, and he walked In history, and it's not close. No comeuppance. No. no comeuppance. He died in his bed. He died in his bed. He, he died against more rays. The guy said they were going to hang him. With a military pension in the rank of Major General from a country that he had <laughs> that he had betrayed and was deemed an enemy of the state of. 
Like, it, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. I, it's, I've been spending two weeks racking my brain thinking about how someone could be this ballsy. And we all know ballsy people. We all know people who can talk a good game. I don't know anyone who would ever come close to this. It's, it's absolutely unfathomable. A psychologist by the name of Robert Caldini, uh, he was the one that published uh, Six Principles That Govern Persuasive Relationships. Ah, yes. And these are things that that he that McGregor just simply did. He never read a book on this. He just simply did it. There's reciprocity, consistency, social validation, scarcity, friendship, and authority. With reciprocity, you have Gregor McGregor going up to these people in London and France and in, mm-hmm. in Scotland and saying, I will give you the opportunity of a lifetime. And all it's going to cost you is just a couple of couple pennies, couple pennies for a couple acres. Most of your life savings, yeah. Mm-hmm. You scratch, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. His consistency, it was he was constantly was he believed the same thing today that he believed yesterday, and he's still going to believe it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, social validation, especially whenever he was approaching the Scots, yeah, they were. The Scots are a very independent and adventurous people, and if you go, but there are to people who've also been kicked down by the Brits for centuries. Right, you are going to be the most Scottish of Scotsmen if you go to Poyas, because if you act now, someone might sweep up Poyas before you did, which appeals to scarcity. Because mm-hmm. Scotland didn't have any; she never had any colonies. Friendship. He was a Scot. There, he's. I am one of you. I, you know, I. I am related to Rob Roy. I am Rob Roy's great great grandson. Yeah. yeah. And authority. He came out with a book by Captain Doctor Thomas. Uh, yes, Stranger. you're right. <laughs> Captain Doctor Thomas. Not Stranger. only was he Thank captain. You for a moment. I forgot the he doctor. Was also a doctor. That's like shit. That's like shit that kids in kindergarten do. Like uh, like whenever they're just inventing, like what they're gonna. My do dad's a doctor and a fighter pilot. Like whenever they grow up, like I'm gonna be in the army and I'm gonna cure cancer, and that, that's how he believed Thomas Strangeways was. Unbelievable! Absolutely fascinating! Unbelievable! Absolutely fascinating! That's insane, Captain <laughs> Doctor Strangeways. Get the fuck Captain out of here! Fuck off! So yeah, so that's it for the story of Gregor McGregor. I'm, I'm actually here's the thing. I hate this guy, but I'm gonna miss him. Fuck this, dude. I'm glad to be rid of him. <laughs> All right. So. It's, it's, it, with, whenever we're talking about some of these other con men, they preyed on people that, that had money. And it makes it a little more enjoyable on our end. Mm-hmm. He ruined people. He ruined people. Well, people... He, you he, imagine these poor Scottish farmers. About 200 people died because yeah. of the shit he pulled. Look at, imagine a Scottish farmer, a penniless Scottish farmer, looking back... One last time at his farm, and then getting on that boat and then dying on a beach. Yeah, this dude sucks, and and he, <laughs> and he never paid the price for it. Even Ned Lowe had more more character. If you guys haven't listened to that one, listen to that one. Yes, the the serial killer pirate, the psycho of the Caribbean. Mm. McGregor has less in common with the, the pirates you've gone over, or the mobsters, and it's he's the modern day villain. Mm-hmm. He's the fake university. This he's is what Hans Gruber did. Say, it's yeah, it's 
it's enraging to be honest. I'm sitting yeah. here and I'm viscerally upset. Yeah. Like it's, it reminds me. I can tell you're getting real to the last been twenty years. It's, you, it's the Iraq invasion. It's I have to laugh because you've been fallacy. getting you've been getting more and more twitchy as this episode went on. And you're already a pretty twitchy fellow. So yeah, everybody, thanks for thanks for listening to this too, Parter. Uh, we had a lot of fun. There were some laughs, and we are angry about it too. I hope we you should feel be. The same I, I feel way. like it is the. It is the correct reaction. I feel as to be incredibly angry after listening to this. So, if you want to follow us on social media, Chris, where can they find us? You can find us on Twitter at TRR. I'm sorry, at Podcast TRR because some asshole has TRR Pod. No posts, no follows. Nothing. You can find us on everything else at TRR Pod because it's easier that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Feel free to drop us a line at uh, TRRPod at gmail.com. Um, you can find me, Rob, on Instagram at Meatneck. You can find me on Twitter at Meatneck2. Kyle? Uh, Twitter, I'm uh, at Kyle Graper. Simple huh. enough. Huh. Simple enough. You're really a creative type. Not I many say. of us. <laughs> uh, Kyle, do you have anything else you want to talk about? Anything you want to plug? Anything you want to let people out there uh, know about? Uh, actually, if you're in Pittsburgh, uh, I uh, run the logistics for a fairly massive wine tasting March 7th at Nova Place in the city. Uh, the benefits go to transitional housing for single parents. Uh, reach out on Twitter. That's uh, called the Crush Grapes event by Sister's Place. Lots of booze, lots of food. Should be fun. Cool, yeah, cool. if you follow us on, on Twitter, we'll be sure to uh, we'll share that through all yeah. of our accounts. We'll share that information. I'd also like to take a minute... Uh, just say on February 6th, my old workplace, Harris Grill in Shadyside, um, actually suffered a pretty devastating fire. The building is still standing, but the entire first floor is uh, gutted. And I, I feel very strongly about this because, you know, I'm no, I'm no longer in the service industry, but I worked at this place for three and a half years, um, and their, their owners, their management... It's like a family. A lot of there are a lot of places in the service industry that really take advantage of their employees. That's not the case. These people really, really went out of their way to, you know, do everything they can to, you know, make life better for the people working for them. And they're going through a really, really hard time right now. Uh, they are running a bit of a GoFundMe to assist with recovery to get them up and running sooner rather than later. This is still my neighborhood bar. Uh, I encourage you, if you've ever enjoyed anything at any of their three locations, to go on uh, GoFundMe, search out Harris Grill. It's the first option that you can find. It looks like the charred first floor of a bar because it is the charred first floor of a bar. And, uh, you know, hopefully get them up and running quicker. Uh, If you can't do that, I encourage you to visit their downtown location at 245 4th Avenue or to visit their sister restaurant, Shiloh Grill on Shiloh Street in Mount Washington. Uh, speaking of the internet, of course, Chris and I have our Patreon page up and running. If you like what we do on the podcast, you like the content we're bringing you, and you would like and you think maybe we deserve a couple dollars of financial support, you can go to patreon.com slash trrpod. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help financially support us. This does cost money to make, but we want to make... You know, we, we want to keep it free. We it will always sure. be free. Don't yeah. worry. We're we not, will never make we're you pay. We're not going to pay to play. We will never make you pay to listen to this podcast. Now, if you do support us past a certain level, it does give you access to uh, specific content, specialty content, and any support. You will get a shout out on the podcast. You will get fir- you'll be first to get information about any events we're running, any live recordings, any live shows, and you will get access to 
the episodes before they go out to the general public. And to sweeten the pot, and I'm gonna this is a seat of the pants thing. We're going with it right now. Uh, if you donate at the five dollar level, well, I will put our faces, yours included, on any picture you want, no mm-hmm. matter how embarrassing. I like that idea. <laughs> I like that idea. Uh, of course, thanks as always to the Bloody Seaman for providing our music. Go check them out on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. I mean, all the yeah, their Bandcamp. That's where I Bandcamp. All, all my goodies. listening services. They are an awesome pirate punk band. Thanks as always to somebody you heard quite a lot today, Jack, our canine now. Yeah, he was putting quite a few clicks on the old Fitbit. He was being uh, he was being a bit restless. He was getting in his steps today. Yeah, he was pissed off about this too. Yeah, yeah this he is actually our longest episode. Yeah, we just broke the mark right now. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna make it a little bit longer because uh, we found something awesome online. Oh yes. Uh, if you would like to become a citizen of the Republic of Poyas, you can do that right now online for two hundred and forty dollars. Which is about what it costs to get a passport here in the states. www.republicofpoyas.org exists. We will be linking to it, mm-hmm. and I'm uh, we're probably going to follow up on this. Uh, I've already reached out. I'm just waiting for a reply. It's kind of fun. It is absolutely brilliant. The f- the video that they did, which is eerily reminiscent of the Firefest video, mm-hmm. is an exact excerpt from what McGregor was pitching. And once you watch it, you will understand how people could fall for this. <laughs> yeah. It, it it was yeah it was fire festival for the age of sale. That's exactly what it was, and so I, instead like, of it's, it's beautiful photos on Instagram, it was everything was made on a printing press. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> or carved into wood. <laughs> <laughs> so next episode, we're going to be sticking with some roguish figures that don't exactly work into the world of pirates. We're going to be getting back to pirates. We are going to be doing a recording in Bradenton, Florida. On St. Patrick's Day weekend. Logistically, really. that one might be a pain in the ass. That might not be our, our Bradenton show, but we will be dropping yeah. a very special uh, we, There will St. be a St. Patrick's Day, Day themed episode. Yeah, that will be released on St. Patrick's Day, yeah. I promise. In yeah. the meantime, our next episode is going to feature a little group called the Hellfire Club. And they're going to be fun to talk about. Kyle's giving me the, the, the devil horns and the headbang over Yeah, there. this is a good one. You're I like it. These, these guys are... A bunch of Victorian and, and Georgian toffs, and they are still metal as all hell. So, yeah, we'll catch you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening. Kyle, thanks for being here today, man. Appreciate it. Hope you had fun. Absolute pleasure. Cool, cool, cool. Guys, we'll see you next time. Uh, just a little warning. Apparently, Ja Rule is doing another music festival. Uh, don't go Look to that for one. that episode sometime early in 2020. Don't, don't, don't go to that one. I, I hear it's going to be murder. Oh, there it is. Yeah, I did it. I did it. Deal with it. Suck it, on that. Let it's that going marinate. to be on a Blink-180 Tuesday. Let, oh, God. <laughs> All right. We're going to stop before this gets any worse. Hold fast, everybody. Bye-bye.